I'm delighted to be welcoming into the Reading Corner today, all the way from Kentucky, Craig Cordell, who is the Director and Chief Instructor at the Nature Reliance School, and is also the author of a children's book, The Secret Signs of Nature. We're going to be talking about that book in a little while. But first, as I welcome Craig, I'd really like to ask him what his work at the Nature Reliance School is all about. Well, well, first, thank you for letting me be on here today. This has been an exciting opportunity. Uh, but Nature Reliance School, uh, we started in 2006 at primarily as a school teaching people safety in the outdoors. And the operative word that seemed to come about along those along that time was this word survival, which a lot of people see survival as what I would consider actually just safety. Make sure that when you go in the outdoors, you're, you're setting up your tent or your hammock or a tarp or whatever in the right place. And you know how to build a fire and not get burned. And so we extend that out in our survival training. That's primarily how we got started because there was such a popular need for this survival training. TV did that for us and it kind of accented the word survival. So we started doing that and it, it kind of grew and grew and the survival TV thing kind of exploded. And so there were schools that were popping up everywhere. And most of the schools were what I would consider hobbyist people that were kind of interested because of pop culture and TV and Hollywood and what have you here in the States. And there were very few folks like me that had spent basically a lifetime in the outdoors sharing skills. And so um, we were recognized for that as that we, we, we know what we're doing and mm -hmm. we do it really well. And so we started teaching survival and, and land navigation. I guess my primary love is teaching tracking. I love tracking. And I included some tracking in this book because of it. But really the, the root of what it is that we are and who we are is just getting people outdoors, mm. make sure they're having fun and they're staying safe. And sometimes that's a special forces man tracking unit that we might be training. And sometimes it might be kids just going outdoors for the first time. Mm, so interesting. Let's start to talk about your book and we'll pick up okay. some other things as we go through that. Sure. It's called The Secret Science of Nature. And I got very excited when I saw this book and I was struck immediately by something in the opening of the book where you say, these aren't survival skills, but a means to enrich your journey. I loved that sentiment. Yeah, um, and that that's really born out of, I, I do a lot of what I call, or what's typically referred to as habitat improvement here in the States. And wildlife habitat improvement, whether it's uh, forestry stewardship or wildlife habitat nesting structures or what have you. And I did that. I owned a, a woodlot for a number of years, and I started that because the previous owner had not taken care of the wilderness that I was fortunately had the ability to steward at that point. And so uh, I, I started studying with the Division of Forestry and the Division of Fish and Wildlife here in my state and learned a lot from biologists that really know that stuff deep. And so me is, I think the term today that we use a lot is citizen scientists. We like, we're trying to create more citizen scientists. And that's a lot of what I wanted to do with this book with children is that, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, a perfect uh, point in that regard is we've been told for years that moss always grows on the north side of trees. What well, doesn't, I mean, it, it, it does not always grow on the north side of trees. And I, I really, truly in my heart believe that somewhere along the line, that was in the children's book somewhere. Mm. 
and it just got passed on and passed on and it's just not true. And so it, the weight of making sure the information in this text was accurate was really heavy upon me as well as I wanted the kids that read the book and the parents that read it to them to then become citizen scientists, stewards, habitat cooperators, whatever you want to call it. I just wanted them to, to integrate themselves in the outdoors and make sure that when they leave, they're leaving it better than they found it. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we wanted to do with this children's book. And that's kind of what I was laying the groundwork for there in the intro. Still sticking with the intro for a moment. Uh, you talk about using all the senses, not just eyesight to see what's going on. And one of the things that becomes very evident as you read through the book is how predominant weather is to all of this, in particular wind and rain. Yeah, and then I believe it's, you know, our ancestors, the people that came before us, before there was written language even. Uh, these people knew that the sun, the wind, the rain, and any weather pattern wherever they existed was very important. That's why sometimes it was even made into deity, right? Uh, they, they held it in such high regard because they knew that that tree grows or that plant grows because of the sun. And this is why it does it this way. They may not have understand it on a molecular level, about biological level, like we do now because of our academic understanding, but they understood that. And so one of the things that, that jumps out in the book to me is exactly that, is that the sun, for example, is a huge huge part of everything that happens in the outdoors all organisms are dependent upon it to a degree so that i wanted to point out that's why the sun plays such an integral role to direction finding and how trees grow how plants grow where butterflies lay insects and stuff of that nature as well as as you've stated just the weather uh, animals know that weather is changing and we are just a species of animal that has adapted ourselves to have real high academic understanding of a lot of subjects, but man, we've really lost some understanding of some real rudimentary aspects of being in the outdoors that we just miss. Bird language that you mentioned is one of them. Birds mm -hmm. talk about danger. They talk about mates and they talk about food. And so once you get tied into those things, if you're a woods person and spend a lot of time outside, then you know, Hey, I hear a bird alarming over there. I might look that direction now. And now I get to see that bobcat that I might have missed because otherwise I didn't know that there was anything over there alarming. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, you've taken a very global perspective in the book, virtually cover the world, the Kalahari Desert, the Galapagos, Japan, France. Was that a very conscious decision to, you know, address it rather than through your own backyard, as it were, to go global? Definitely any book out there is a team effort with the publisher, in this case, an illustrator and a writer, a creative team. The publisher was the driving force behind wanting to make it a global book. My expertise, I'm a master naturalist here in the United States in my region. And that just means I have a, a fair amount of education on natural regions and ecological concerns and what have you here. So that was one of, well, I won't say it was one of, it was probably the biggest hurdle for me as a writer and as a researcher, because I've never been to the Kalahari Desert. I study Japanese martial arts, but I've never been to Japan to understand. Uh, I, I did understand some of the basics ecology that happened in Japan because they're very interesting people to me. But, but I 
I've told everybody, this is my fourth book and this is my first children's book. And I did more research for this book than any other book that I've written. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it required a tremendous amount of research and a tremendous amount of back and forth between me and the editor. And, you know, those, those discussions back and forth can get, uh, rough sometimes. And I was very glad that magic cat worked with me and the, the things that we needed to work through, we were able to work through and they provided some research and things that they thought were true that, you know, I had to do the research on to make sure they are or are not. And so they really pointed me in the right direction of a lot of things they wanted to see from an overall perspective. And then it was up to me as the writer to dig into those details that you see that are laid out in the book. Mm-hmm. And did you find that really there's more commonality than there is difference, that the context is different, but actually a lot of the signs are very similar? I would say that there's both. Okay. And here's what I mean by that. There's commonalities and there's differences. So the commonalities are those things that I was mentioning earlier, you know, the sun weather patterns, particularly wind patterns, which is a big part of the book and in, in different weather climatic conditions as well. Every entity, every place on earth is going to have those things. But what is different is the geological formation versus the soil composition, what type of trees grow here and there. And, and so what herbaceous plants grow here, you know, what I did find is, there's a lot of things that grow, for example, in China that grow on the Eastern side of the United States. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but it was interesting to see that, you know, going to the Kalahari desert, we don't have a desert in Kentucky, U S right. And so learning to read that landscape was very interesting to me. And I'm an outdoorsman. So I, you know, I dug into it and loved doing the research. Mm. One of the things that I really loved um, and you put into words, something that I think I've known but haven't ever expressed, and that is that you can smell the weather. Right, petrichor. Yeah, I love that. Tell us a bit about it. So basically what you have is that when when rain hits the ground, it causes a disturbance. And so if you imagine that rain is typically gathered and moved due to prevailing winds. And so as rain's coming into an area and it's hitting the ground and these organisms are opening up because they're recognizing that the barometric pressure is changing and they're opening up to receive the rain, plus the rain's hitting the ground and knocking organisms, small organisms that we can't really see with the naked eye are bouncing up into the air and then the prevailing winds are carrying them. And so those of us who've had a nose to go, man, I smell rain coming. That's what you're smelling. I mean, there's a term for that overall, whatever all that stuff is. There's a whole host of different organisms that get knocked up into the air. And so that we breathe them and smell them coming to us through the prevailing winds, which is, you know, just putting a scientific name on. And again, this is what I like to attach everybody to or remind everybody. People before the written word were doing this. And that really all I'm doing is I'm directing people back to that. And adding a little academic understanding to it as well, which I think makes people happy. And I hope, or at least I hope it does. Mm. There were some details as well that um, completely fascinated me, things that I, I'd not thought about before. Sunflowers and how they turn towards the sun through their growth. I had yeah. no idea. I believe the scientific term is heliotropic mm. for that. And, and basically, 
they require a, a fair amount of sunlight to form that big, huge head. And the the head is a flower, but it also contains so many seeds in it. It needs a lot of energy. And so it's going to face the sun as much as it possibly can. The interesting thing to me is that even though the sun is the driving force, really, for it to face up and look at it and then turn, that when somewhere shortly after midday, they usually get what they need, droop their heads, and then they'll slowly go back to facing east, ready for the next day. Mm. And it, it's fascinating that they follow the sun. But what's as fascinating to me as anything is that they know <laughs> to droop their heads and then go back to the beginning without the sun. And didn't you write that um, one side of the stem grows more than the other and then it reverses? Correct. And, and, and there's just so it's many a bit things mind out there. blowing. <laughs> it is. And I mean, it's one of them things that I think most of us that do go into the outdoors and we, it's what I call when I'm teaching tracking, it's what I call looking versus seeing. Uh, there's a lot of people that can go out into the outdoors and look at things. It's a whole different effort that you put into seeing things. How are plants branched? Are they opposite? Are they alternate? Is this side of the tree heavier than that side of the tree? Is the bark on this side of the tree thicker than this side of the tree? Does all the flowers on this particular plant, are they on the southern facing side of this plant? Yeah, they are. They're all, is there a reason for that? And so the, these, the question of why is a great question to have in mind when you go into the outdoors, if you want to gain the, even if it's a rudimentary or even a scientific understanding of the outdoors, that I think you can ask yourself, why is the flower on that side of that plant and not on the other side? And if you look at the others, are they all like that? And so that question is really useful as you go into the outdoors. Mm -hmm. And really, if you don't want to go that deep with it, there's nothing wrong with just looking at stuff too. Well, we know that it's not all about survival, but one of the scenarios that often runs through my head is what would I do if a shark came along now, what would I do if a bear, came, you know, those scenarios that run through your head? And one of them is, what would I do if I got stuck in the desert? And you do give us some clues as to how we would find water. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah, you, if you think about it, we're all animals. We're a species of animal humans. And we need the same things the other animals do. We need shelter, we need water, and we need food. And so one of the things that we can do is recognize that certain plants might need extra water. So if we see those plants in the distance, we can go to them. Or, and this is why I love tracking, if you know how to track and you've come across animal tracks, which is one of the segments in, in one of the desert sections in the book, is you follow the animal tracks because they're going to go to water. So being able to track even rudimentarily is going to be a beneficial practice to be able to, to utilize to get to the water. And you also say, get up high and look around you. Yeah, obviously take the high ground whenever you can get up high and you can see more of your surroundings and that's really useful. But as we're finding here, we do a lot of land navigation training here in the States for uh, military law enforcement and civilians here. One of the things that we do, like in my state where we have rolling hills, we don't have humongous mountains here in Kentucky. We've got hills. And if you get on top of a hill here in Kentucky where it's covered in trees and low herbaceous material, you can't see very far. So what we utilize here even is getting into drainages. 
where water has created a drainage and measuring the angles of those drainages with a compass to determine your place on a map, if that's what you have or GPS. And, and so it actually takes both, but to find water, uh, one of the better solutions is to go downhill because water creates drainages. But if you're having trouble seeing it at all, then, then climb something high and look about. Again, I find that really interesting. I remember standing with a group of children uh, in the middle of a city on a hill. And I said, which way do you think the river is? And they had no idea. Yeah. And I said, well, it can only be in one direction, can't it? Can't be up there. <laughs> right. Where do we think it? So, really basic things that perhaps people haven't encountered before. Well, and this brings up, and I, I taught a class, and it's a long time ago, and it was really struck me. My wife has a degree in early childhood education. And so we, she and I, she's helped me tremendously understand children and how they're, how they work and how they develop when I was writing this book. But one of the things that we were teaching this kid's course and I asked them where North is and some of the kids pointed up, up into the sky. And I've been thinking about that ever since it happened. And I'm convinced that it's because they typically learn in a two-dimensional world. They have a map that's on a wall in their classroom. And so North is up on that map. But when they get themselves out into the three-dimensional world, they don't understand. They utilize that concept that they studied in the classroom. And we live in a three-dimensional world out there, not a two-dimensional world out there. And so bridging the gap is where our educators have a, a job in front of them that I think, you know, getting out into the environment, environmental education opportunities uh, should be increasing for all children across the world. I think the more children get outside, there's just it's good for them. It's good for us. It's good for society and cultures, but there's just some things that you are learned best when you're standing mm. on a hill. Mm. You mentioned earlier GPS. Do you think we over rely on those sorts of things? Oh, there's Does no it? doubt about it. You know, I teach a lot of people survival. Uh, and again, what I would consider safety and survival, uh, law enforcement, search and rescue and civilians. We, we do a lot of it. Uh, I taught two kids groups this week and I'm teaching a federal law enforcement agency next week. It's, it's one of those things that anything that runs on batteries, you've got to have a backup for. And let's, let, if we consider navigation, for example, or, or wayfinding or loss proofing, whatever we want to call it, then, you know, I think it's an easier transition for people to now be able to pick up their cell phone, their device that they carry with them all the time and utilize that. So we're, we're teaching that, right? Mm -hmm. But we also teach what I would call the requisite skills that come behind it, which are how to actually look at a paper map and how that map and that GPS apply to the earth, which is called terrain association. And so we'll show somebody a map and go, okay, see that line right there. That's that ridge that we're standing here looking at. And that way people can start to apply again, what I was mentioning earlier, this three-dimensional real world that we're in to this two-dimensional surface, whether it's on a screen or a map, either one. But I'm, th this is going to seem counter to what most people in my position say. Children are so tied into electronics now that I like using them as a bridge. I think if we take children that are used to using a device, whether it's an iPad or a computer, or a phone or whatever, and we take it from their hands and go, okay, go out into the outdoors and enjoy themselves. We're going to be sadly disappointed. We've created this culture where that's a common thing that they're going to do. So what I do is I bridge the gap by, okay, let's use this app to try to identify this plant. Mm -hmm. 
And okay, so you can see this app is really good, but it's not giving you the information you need. Now here's a book that we can then transition to, to get further information or, Hey, take pictures. And this is one of the things that Carrie, the illustrator for the book, it was just fat. When I saw it, I was like that. I didn't even say that, but she knew what needed to be put in there. She's got a picture of one of the kids in the book, taking a picture of another kid with a rainbow in the background. And that's perfect. I mean, the kids are out enjoying the outdoors, but they're using their devices. And I think that can be a bridge for us because I wanted to get in their notebooks and, and people sketching things because we use sketching as a way of mnemonic filing uh, details of tracks and plants for our students. And so um, she drew that in there as the illustrator. And so I think that's part of what made this such a wonderful team. Um, showing how to bridge the gap between electronics and what have you, I think, well, I know, I know once we do that, people will get more connected and leave the phone behind more so. I find that fascinating uh, because I was going to suggest that maybe you can use the digital technology to add to knowledge by taking and uploading photos. I know that we've been doing various tree courses here and uploading our photos along with all the other people studying the same thing. So you see it in lots of different contexts. You can build knowledge quickly using the digital stuff. And also with birdsong, which can be quite hard to identify. I think there's some good apps now for helping you to know what you're listening to. Yeah, actually, I just started using one uh, two or three weeks ago. Bird language, I understand the general understanding of it. And and there's a few birds that I see a lot that I know them pretty easily. But in general, I'm not one of these people that go, what bird is that? And I know it, I just don't. And so I think the best way to study that is to study with somebody. But the facsimile, if you will, that we can utilize until we can get that sort of training is to use an app. Mm -hmm. And so bird language, I've been using it for three, three weeks now. And there's been several birds I've been able to identify that I hear all the time. And I'm like, I just don't, I I never see that bird. It's, it's in the top, it's in the canopy. It never comes down. Um, When I go that direction, it always leaves and I never get to see it, but I can record it. And then I go, okay, I have seen that bird before Hmm. uh, just by the bird sound. So yeah, it's a, I think it's another way of bridging the gap for somebody like me where I'm studying mostly on my own most of the time and I need help like that. As you say, there's nothing quite like an expert. Yeah. Thank you for emphasizing that because I, I think that is the best way to learn from, and it's not just because I run a school that we do this. This is how I learn. I, I seek out experts in different fields and study with them. There's so much to uh, gain from this wonderful book, Craig. It is, it's a, you've, you've talked about the illustrator and also the production, you know, the publishers lavished a lot of love on putting this book together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see it as one that teachers definitely and parents will share together. I wondered whether you had any plans to put together a different kind of book, which is more of a pocket thing that you can carry around with you. I would really like to see the publisher do that. If they don't want to, I will. Yeah, a companion, a definite companion. Craig, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I feel that I've learned so much in this very brief encounter. I already feel enriched and uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. This has been a pleasure. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. 
If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.